This is Black Clock Audio Tales with a Beowulf special featuring Ken Height. This episode is brought to you, as always, by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some slippers from BunnySlippers.com. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. If you've got a favorite animal, they've probably got a slipper for it. If you've got... I don't know, a hobby that you like, there's probably slippers matching it. They've got USB slippers that you can plug in, keep your feet warm. It's, they've got, the, they've got top of the line, cutting edge slippers from all across the world, world, war. BunnySlippers.com. Starting now. So, Ken, uh, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales, and we're talking about some Beowulf this month. Fantastic. Uh, what's What's the basic rundown of Beowulf? Um, I I mean, I know that it's uh, it's an it's an, it's an epic Anglo-Saxon poem, and uh, some guys kill a monster. Its mom comes, and then they have to kill the mom, and then 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 there's a dragon a whole bunch later, and. <laughs> Sounds like you know Beowulf, <laughs> except it's just one guy who kills uh, Grendel, the monster, uh, and it's one guy who kills Grendel's mom, and he only gets a sidekick when he is, like, king of the Gaets, and uh, the dragon shows up, and his sidekick, Wiglaf, is there to hold his shield. Hmm. So, for the first part of the poem, it's about Beowulf all by himself as a lone hero. And then the last part of the poem is Beowulf um, as part of a society, at Beowulf at home, and that, uh, you know, basically, uh, you uh, the guy who fights monsters is going to die fighting monsters. That's just the way the world works. Okay. All right. I, 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 was, uh, I always kind of get the feeling that, like, maybe it's like, well, this part was part of this one story, and then they tacked on this other part later. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I think that to say that it, it it to say that about something that was written in Anglo-Saxon times in the whatever it was seventh uh-huh. century or whatever um, is different than saying that about a book that was written, um, you know, now. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. if right now we have a story that's about a a guy who goes and he fights a monster and he comes back and suddenly it's Sleeping Beauty, you would say, you just retold Sleeping Beauty and maybe you did it well or maybe you did it badly. But we would have a a sort of a degree to which we would see that as an artificial joining. This notion that uh, something that we create has to be original to ourselves and come out of this uh, this perfect romantic muse concept of, of where literature comes from. Mm-hmm. And that even though every novel about a English professor cheating on his wife is basically the same freaking novel. We have to uh, believe that they are original and that they speak to something about the author. Whereas in um, uh, Anglo-Saxon times, and I guess uh, people are more 10th century than, than 8th century on it, but whatever. Uh, in Anglo-Saxon times, um, taking a known story and working it into your story made your story better. Okay. Because you are taking the authority of that other story and you're saying, this is how great my guy is. He's, uh, he's one of the people that has done this thing that, you know, King Arthur did or whoever. Mm -hmm. And there is in fact that little bit of Beowulf, or I guess it's early where he's, uh, 
telling King Rothgar who he is, and he run, real fast runs down all the cool adventures that he's had before the poem ever starts. Okay. And you have little bits of people's ancestry being thrown in there, and that's the Beowulf poet saying, everyone remember all these other great poems and all these other elements. And in a way, Beowulf is closer, uh, and this will be the sound of everybody's um, uh, blackboards breaking, uh, closer to a Marvel Universe movie than to a, uh, a, a sort of a Scorsese movie yeah. uh, to, to start that fight again. But where <laughs> Scorsese, although he's using, obviously, in, in many cases, history, uh, the history of the mob or the history of Japan or the history of Tibet, mm-hmm. to tell a personal story, the story that he's telling, we all agree, is a personal story that is drawn out of him. And that if it has a resonance or a connection to Casino or to Goodfellas, that's thematic resonance. It's not like, oh, these are the adventures of these same batch of guys, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Whereas in uh, the Marvel movies, yeah, the, the the sort of the Easter egg is is kind of part of the point because it weaves you into this larger narrative universe. And to some extent, that is how storytelling just functioned before the growth of the novel, okay. um, that all of storytelling was supposed to weave you into the larger uh, theological or created or uh, adventurous universe. And that's why... Uh, when Apollonius of Rhodes writes Jason and the Argonauts, writes the Argonautica, he doesn't, you know, he uses heroes you've all heard of and puts them all together. He's the first guy who, who does the Avengers Assemble thing. Okay. Um, when uh, uh, Credian of Troyes writes his own King Arthur stories, he doesn't make up a bunch of new knights. He takes all the cool knights that everyone loves and he adds the Holy Grail, which is the thing that he's super concerned about. All right. So the Beowulf poet, whoever he happens to have been, when he's putting together all the Beowulf bits, um, you can argue back and forth, and people have argued back and forth because we have so very little Anglo-Saxon poetry uh, that does uh, survive, uh, as to how much of that is him saying, now you remember this cool story, but I'm going to tell you it was even cooler because Beowulf did it. Yeah. And how much of it is this guy saying, I have a great story that I heard about a hero, and I'm going to put it into a poem. And then I'm also going to do a dragon fight that is like all the dragon fights that you've already heard, because that is how you know it's a dragon fight. And you recognize (laughs) it, and you have that recognizability. But I don't think that the Beowulf poem, the Beowulf poet took one poem about a dragon and one poem about a Grendel and said, I'll bet if I just change the name of the dragon guy, I could make it a poem. (laughs) Okay. Right? I I think he's, he's writing, and as far as anyone, and I'm not the guy, but as far as anyone can tell... Beowulf is meant to be a single poem about a single hero and that Beowulf's, um, we would use the term personal growth. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon poet would have his brother-in-law kill us for saying that, Mm -hmm. but his sort of, um, uh, path as a hero is part of the poem and it's part of why he dies at the end, um, is because of the way that he lived, uh, to begin with and that he is acting as a protector but in many ways, um, uh, even w- once he's king, he is still out there on the on the pointy end of things. He is ne- he is, uh, and you can argue this is because he is different from normal people, or because he's better than normal people, uh, and, and that's an argument again that I'm sure people have had about Beowulf. Yeah. Um, but he's he's the guy whose job it is is to kill monsters, and even if his job is also to be king, the first job never goes away. Once you've taken up that that magic sword that he finds in the barrow, you know, once you've taken that up. You don't get to put it back down and say, I was just fun and monster. 
monster killing's a young man's game. I'm going to be king of the gets or gates or gets, whoever these guys are. Yeah. I mean, Grendel is Grendel's amazing. Yeah. Um, first of all, because again, like in the Marvel universe, the Beowulf poet makes sure that he's connected to a bigger, cooler story that you all know. Mm-hmm. So he says, Grendel is descended from Cain. That's right. Cain from the Bible. <laughs> oh, blew your mind. And so uh, Grendel's amazing mm-hmm. because he is sort of the anti-thing, right? He is everything that you like in the world, uh, parties, um, happiness, uh, brotherhood, uh, friendship, uh, belief in your own might as a, as a warrior. Grendel negates all of that, right? He hates the sound of parties. That's why Hrothgar's um, uh, Mead Hall, Herod, is cursed, is because he built it too near Grendel's cave. He's, you know, descended from Cain, so he's not, in, uh, he's out of the sight of God, unlike how people are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, when he busts in, he just trivializes all of your nightly prowess. Nothing that you do matters. Uh, he's outside society. He doesn't care. Uh, he'll, king, he'll kill Carls uh, and Thralls just the same way. So he's this sort of monster that negates everything good and and fun and decent and proper. He's, he's the anti-that. Yeah. And so when Beowulf kills him, again, by wrenching his arm off, which is terrific, uh, because, you know, we've written the story where it's like, oh, you can't be killed by swords. He's swordproof. Um, and then it's, it's just this amazing moment that Beowulf is like, no, you can, if you are hero enough, defeat even the worst things you can you can you can restore uh uh you know happiness basically mm-hmm. and uh and that's that's a neat uh, that, that first of all it's a super uh, sophisticated monster idea yeah and then i think we think of primitive monsters as being sort of you know boring or or one-dimensional yeah that it's like well it's a dragon it just blows fire at you whatever or it's a griffin it, it's a it's a lion with an eagle head all mm-hmm. right i get it um you know, people then were just as intellectually sophisticated as we are now. It's just that they lived in a, you know, stone building that was heated by a fireplace, not uh, on the Internet. Yeah. So their desires for sophisticated entertainment are the same as ours. Uh, and to be able to build that kind of sophistication into a uh, poem intended to be performed like this one probably was uh, – that's that kind of even argues that the Beowulf poet is probably better at creating symbols and creating stories and doing these things than the average person is now who can just say eh, it's Spider-Man, right? <laughs> yeah. And so the for the Beowulf poet to be able to build all of these layers in is I mean we we think oh my goodness what a sophisticated uh, author but it's just. His poem survived because it was good, mm-hmm. and people made copies of it. And then it, we lucked into it because the fire that burned down half the library didn't burn down the other half with this poem in it. Um, but uh, but the but the Beowulf poet, I think, I, I don't know if people are just surprised or being patronizing when, when they say, "Goodness, this is a very sophisticated poem." It's like, of course, it's a sophisticated poem. What did you think? He's not an illiterate. I mean, he he wrote it down for God's sake. We know he could write. We know he could read. We know he's a big part of the the high culture of Anglo-Saxon England, which is not nothing, um, because he's writing this great poem and he's getting it, you know, copied by by monks, which argues he's got at least some kind of political pull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
you know, the, the, the notion that um, looking at Beowulf as this sort of simpler document from a simpler time is, well, first of all, it's wrong. But second of all, it means you can't appreciate Beowulf. It's self-defeating as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. All right. Uh, what what other kind of texts the texts like this exist in like is Beowulf like the prime example of Anglo-Saxon poems or is there something else out there that's like I, I mean you can fit I think pretty much all of Anglo-Saxon poetry into a book okay <laughs> and not a super thick book either I mean mm-hmm. Beowulf is is a is a relatively short poem it's shorter obviously than the um, uh, than the Iliad or the Odyssey by a long chalk. Um, uh, you can compare it, I think, uh, and this is begins to get stretchy, but you can compare it to things like the Poetic Edda, mm-hmm. uh, which are uh, the Icelandic recensions of Norse uh, mythological cycles. And there you can get into an argument as to whether Snorri Sturluson you know, how much editing he's doing mm-hmm. on those stories. Or you could look at things like the Volsunga saga, which is from, you know, maybe the, uh, uh, it's from Germany, not from Scandinavia, but mm-hmm. it's sort of the larger same aspect of, of that North, North Sea sort of culture. Um, and then, uh, again, but the Volsunga saga is another Icelandic redaction of a German poem. So we don't have those originals in their own languages as, and Beowulf, we sort of we lucked into literally, like I say, the other half of that library had burned down. We wouldn't have Beowulf, and we wouldn't even know about it. Yeah, we'd possibly know about something else. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, there there might have been an equally cool poem in the other wing of the library, but I, I don't know. I mean, it it, it it's sort of just magic sheer luck that we have it, and we don't have a ton of Anglo-Saxon work just because, again. You know, your your monk copying time was a was a precious resource. Yeah. And uh, Anglo-Saxon monster poetry is probably farther down the list than, you know, the Bible and uh, whatever the king needs copied today. <laughs> I wonder if Beowulf mostly exists because of monk bootlegs. Like, <laughs> yeah, they were like, you know. Doing it after hours for for um, uh, monster fans. Yeah, <laughs> it was like the the um, uh, the the black clock Scrivener. Yeah, <laughs> and he would sneak out and and write down monster books at night. <laughs> <laughs> what out there do you think really has kind of like? Uh, I mean, there's there's nothing out there that like Beowulf follows the blueprint of. But what do you think that's out there? contemporary, not contemporary to Beowulf, but like modern media that, or even modern literature, I guess, that uh, kind of like uses Beowulf as a blueprint. Or are we talking about like Beowulf sold, everything's kind of based off Beowulf? I mean, everything's not based off Beowulf, first of all, because people didn't know about Beowulf. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, we started... uh, much of uh, British heroic literature got farmed out to the French mm-hmm. for a good long time or borrowed from the Welsh. Um, the sort of literal English-English heroic literature is kind of, I don't want to say thin on the ground, but it's not as rich and goofy as the Arthur Corpus, which is what's going on in France and uh, in Wales, and then sort of sometimes gets done in England and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and the Arthur stories, of course, have 
cool monster fights sure. in them as well. But the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of heroic literature is, as far as I am aware, and there are individual poems and lays that, that show up, uh, but to, to get something that is as present in the mind as King Arthur, you have to wait until, I think, Robin Hood. Okay. And the Robin Hood poems start in the 15th century. Hmm. And obviously Beowulf and Arthur and Robin Hood are all three entirely different characters. They don't even fight the same kinds of villains. Um, but they are all heroes in the way that we would recognize them now and uh, and say this is heroic literature because it's about these central figures that uh, restore order or, rest- or rest- restore justice in the case of Robin Hood. Um uh, via some sort of prowess that they possess, whether it be super strength like Beowulf, whether it be, you know, um, uh, the, the blessing of God and uh, the fighting power like uh, Arthur or his knights, or whether it be um, preternatural archery skill like Robin Hood, all of these elements sort of crop up. But it's not like Beowulf starts us on a whole series of monster fighters uh, that we then, you know, can all look back on. I think. Beowulf is sort of obscure, and then it gets rediscovered in the 18th century okay. uh, when they're cataloging uh, the sort of the first wave of antiquarianism goes through and starts cataloging all the old uh, medieval manuscripts that they have lying around. And <laughs> it is thanks to those antiquarians that we got Beowulf sort of swooped up in the um, uh, in, in that collecting mania, which of course is why it was in a place to get maybe set on fire, but. The um, uh, uh, but the, the 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 sort of notion that there would be um, cool stories uh, about these central hero figures seems to have been you know if you had a cool hero story you made it an Arthur story for about three hundred years mm-hmm. so I, I think that the notion of needing to figure someone else out who was not either Alexander the Great, because there was another giant literature of Alexander the Great stories that goes all the way back to like the third century BC and gets bigger and crazier in the Renaissance, in the the medieval times. Uh, And you would would have stories about Alexander the Great, you know, harnessing griffins to his chariot or Alexander the Great, um, uh, finding the the monsters at the end of the world or or whatever he would be doing. He would be up to his own adventures. So there's a little bit of that. Um, And then again, there's sort of one-off stories about um, uh, uh, there's a heroic wolf uh, who's, who's in a couple of stories. But again, it's not like there is a, a I think, a self-conscious... Everyone is, who's, who's writing has read the Bible. We know mm-hmm. that. Yeah. We don't necessarily know what second book they would have read. So the degree to which these literatures are informing each other is a, a big question mark. Um, the Arthur p- poets mostly all read other Arthur poets, mm-hmm. they all read uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, but none of them read Beowulf, I don't think, because I, I'm fairly sure Beowulf, you know, was in a language no one could read and was in very few copies. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so um, who, who were the Anglo-Saxons? What, wh- when, when did this go on like uh, when, when did this story take place who were the anglo-saxons and like what else was going on in the the world at that time to like kind of i guess get a sense of history yeah well i mean we got two things going on um first you have the story 
and when it is set. Okay. And and then we have the environment in which it was written. All right. And to sort of go backward, uh, we talk about the Anglo-Saxons a lot. The Anglo-Saxons are uh, the uh, primarily from Germany, from uh, northern uh, Germany near the Baltic, and then from the area right south of that, the area that's called Saxony still today. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of those Germans uh, started moving to Britain because Britain fell apart and had no cops. And so <laughs> uh, to begin with, many of them were imported by local landowners to as, as basically as mercenaries to guard their, uh, their money. And then soon, or not soon enough perhaps, they realized... Oh, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> We've told them where the money is, and they have all the swords. Um, so, uh, you, you, it's called the Anglo-Saxon Conquest in older books with uh, bright colors in them. Later books talk about Anglo-Saxon migration. Some books talk about only elites of the Anglo-Saxons come over and convert everyone to Anglo-Saxon culture patterns. Because if you look at the genetic history of the British Isles, mm-hmm. um, it, it, people pretty much have all been English since the you know, first chalk figures were cut yeah. and the, the quote unquote invasions don't turn out to be giant population movements. But for whatever reason, everyone suddenly started speaking a Germanic language, not a Celtic or Latin language, uh-huh. uh, worshiping Germanic gods, not uh, Christ or Roman gods or Celtic gods and burying their dead the way the Germans buried their dead back in Saxony. So probably there's a bigger population movement than modern historians like to believe and if it's all guys with swords, that probably explains why, you know, they would have married it locally. Um, and so their descendants would genetically look like the people who'd always been there. So maybe there weren't a ton of Anglo-Saxon mothers-in-law that, that migrated over, but there was lots of young Anglo-Saxon men who wanted to uh, 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 make a living uh, uh, or, or, or possibly steal a living um, in some fashion. I just and keep- so those... Oh, uh, that migration is when um, uh, Beowulf's story is happening because he is a um, uh, a, a, a German uh, or Scandinavian hero. Um, he is a Gaet, which means he is from sort of uh, what we would now consider to be Western Sweden, but I think in his time was considered Gateland, its own little land. And um, uh, so he was one of these guys who goes over to England and he goes over... A, from internal dates in the story, he goes around uh, 500 and something or other mm-hmm. uh, because he mentions in the poem uh, the raid by um, uh, King Higelach, uh, which is a historic event. And so we can sort of date that historic event. And the fun part of it is that he's going into England right about the same time as King Arthur might have been. Huh. So King Arthur, as we all remember, fights off the Anglo-Saxons, and he fights yeah. them at the Battle of Maiden Hill and in the in the year 500 AD, and he uh, stops them for generations, for three generations or two generations or whatever it is. And Anglo-Saxon migration slams up against King Arthur and, uh, and stops. And again, this is one of those things that older histories will tell you, and the newer histories will say, eh, maybe not. Okay. But... But the larger sort of the fun uh, story is that, yeah, when Beowulf, if he's a historical figure, mm-hmm. is in England, is when King Arthur is in, is a historical figure, if he's a historical figure, is also in England. And someone missed a great crossover, yeah. is all I'm saying. Yeah. Some, 
some English poet could have really banged one out <laughs> and had a, 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 a Hobbes versus Shaw of the of the of the twelfth uh, century, mm-hmm. but the um, uh, the uh, uh, so so this is the milieu in which Beowulf is set is this time when people are going over and sort of uh, working for local kings, be they British or in this case. Uh, also, um, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon like uh, Rothgar is. Um, Rothgar is a skilding, uh, which I'm not entirely sure what that is. But they're like a scan, uh, a clan of uh, someone Scandinavian, and whether that's Swedish or uh, Danish or North German is, I guess, still up in the air. Yeah. Um, and so he uh, has his own land there somewhere, and probably. Uh, Norfolk or the East because it's all Fen country and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Beowulf goes over and has his adventure there. And then the author of the poem is sort of after these pirates have settled down, taken over the land, argued amongst themselves about who's going to be king. Uh, One guy won, uh, King Alfred of Wessex. Um, He fights off the Danes, who's the next batch of Scandinavian invaders. And then uh, they've risen up to a position of power and then the Danes invade again. So people who go for a late authorship for Beowulf, the 11th century, mm-hmm. say that it's written during the time of King Canute, who's the king of Denmark, who's invaded England, and that it's an attempt to write a story. Oh, look, a Scandinavian hero who comes to Britain and stops monsters. I wonder who that could be. Could it be like good old King Canute? Who can say? People who say it was written earlier say that it is more likely to be based on a real story and that it is um, uh, a... Uh, uh, a guy who's probably lives in that neck of the woods, that eastern part of England, and is like, I've got a cool local story, and I'm a great poet. I'm going to write it down. Hmm. And uh, and again, you can blend the two. You can say there was a cool local story about a guy who came over and fought a monster named Grendel, and um, uh, then went back and uh, and died uh, under a dragon, or that could have been something that the poet inserted because he felt that the story needed an ending, and. Uh, talking about how kings should die, protecting their people is never a bad idea. Um, you might've had political thoughts. And so the, um, uh, uh, so it's not an either or it's not either fully invented or fully local. Uh, you can, you can compromise how you want. And since we don't know anything about the Beowulf poet, except they wrote Beowulf and were probably a boy, but you can't guarantee that, um, that the Beowulf poet wrote Beowulf and in Anglo-Saxon, and so we have sort of a, a period, I, like I say, I always thought it was like closer to the 8th century, but I guess uh, people now are, are saying 10th century or even 11th century. Um, but the uh, but the Beowulf uh, uh, tradition comes out of this sort of settled Anglo-Saxon kingdom that is either under threat from the Danes or has been fixed and rejuvenated by the Danes, depending on what side of the line you think that the, uh, that the Beowulf poet lives on. All right. Cool. Well, Ken, thank you so much for talking to us about Beowulf, unless you have anything else that you really need to tell us about Beowulf. Um, I would say that uh, if people have not read John Gardner's novel Grendel, Uh which retells Beowulf from the perspective of Grendel, um, that is a very good novel, and it was done very early in that by now very tiresome trend of where you take monsters and you uh, humanize them. And so you get... Dracula wasn't bad, and the Wicked Witch wasn't bad, and uh-huh. none of these people were bad, but John Gardner is a liter- literally great writer. He's a great poet, and um, uh, so his 
his prose uh, Grendel is actually uh, very good, and I would recommend it. Um, for everything else, um, avoid the movies. They're all terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, 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 the dragon fight is... is it, it, the fight at the end of Sleeping Beauty is what the dragon fight looks like in my head. So yeah. if you're asking okay. me what the best Beowulf movie is, it's 10 minutes of Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> nice. All right. Thank you so much, Ken. And check out Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Uh, and, and any other projects you have to, going on right now? Uh, I'm, I'm uh, getting uh, up to speed on Hellenistica, which is nice. where I take the uh, good parts version of the 3rd century BC and turn it into a and d world. But nice. it's a and d world with Greece and uh, India and Persia and Egypt and all the other familiar places so that you can uh, uh, chart your course by uh, Alexander's and uh, and then uh, look uh, world background up on Wikipedia instead of me having to bore you with it. <laughs> cool. All right. Thank you. Mu- Thank you so much again, Ken. No, always happy to come on. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Thank you.